to Numbers 13, um, it's 21 to 24, and then Numbers 32, uh, verse 9. Let's speak about the Valley of Decision. Numbers 13, 21 to 24, and Numbers 32, uh, verse 9. So Numbers 13 says, So they went up and searched the land from the wilderness of Sin unto Rahab as men come to Hamath. And they ascended by the south and came unto Hebron, where Iamin and uh, Sheshai and Talmai and the children of Anak were. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt, and they came into the brook of Eshel, and they, they cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes, and they bare it between two upon a staff, and brought of the pomegranates and of the figs, and the place was called the brook of Eshel, because the cluster of grapes which the children of Israel cut down from thence. And uh, Numbers 32 and 9 says, For they went up into the valley of Eshel, and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel, that they would not go into the land which the Lord had given them. Let's pray once, once more, and we'll pray later, hopefully. Let's pray together uh, before we get into the Word. Jesus, uh, we thank you for your presence that's here. God, your anointing, I pray, God, that you would continue to work this morning. Jesus, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, God. If we're in this valley today, God, that we would... God, we would come out on the right side. In Jesus' name, God, I pray that you would challenge us and move in our lives today. In Jesus' name, God, let your will be done. God, the rest of the service, God, in our lives, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And you can sit if you so desire. Um, last week, we, I, said, I read a quote that said, The mountain tops are great, but the, the valley's where things grow. And it's true. We, don't, we live in the, the valley. Right, and this is everything grows here. And like we said, they sell it to the grocery store and the price quadruples. Well, the point is, things things grow in the valley, and you know, as Christians, we're always looking for those uh, mountaintops experiences. You know, Moses and the glory of God and the um, the transfiguration, revelation type things, and these great victories. But the thing about mountaintops, you can't live there. Not these mountains. These are jokes. But real mountains, you get up there, nothing grows, it's, it's cold, it's, it's terrible. You can't, you can't really live there, and you have, it's unsustainable, nothing grows up there, you have to come down off the mountains. And people climb mountains all the time, but they always have to come back down to the real world. So we as Christians, sometimes we get so focused and obsessed with these huge moments and these experiences and the big meetings and the big revelations. And we're just always chasing them, and they don't last forever. And it's unhealthy for us just to crave and focus on those moments because it's the walking through the valleys that get us to those moments, get us to the mountains. It's in the valleys that we grow and get the strength and the wisdom and the knowledge to climb these mountains. Things grow in the valley, and if all we do is try to run up mountains, we will get exhausted and burn out, and we will faint. But if we allow God to teach us, work with us and grow um, grow us in the valleys, we will get to the top of these mountains and thrive. And we'll be fine and we'll go back down. Because that's what you do. So we're, we started last week a little series about some of the different valleys of the Bible. 
and how God is the God of, of the valley. And the, in the Bible, there are all kinds of valleys of our name that some aren't. Um, we're going to look at a couple of them. And uh, probably the most famous valley isn't even a real valley. It's what David calls a valley of the shadow of death. But he says, I will not fear for thou art with me in this, this valley. And we can rest assured that whatever valley that we're going to talk about, whatever valley we find ourselves in, God is with us. David said, I can make my bed in Sheol or hell, and you'd be there. So he's not leaving us. And sometimes, sometimes valleys are good, sometimes they're rough. But anyways, last week we talked about a valley, the valley of Siddim, or the valley of sin with Lot and Abraham and um, all that, and Sodom and Gomorrah and all that great stuff, and how we face this valley many times in our lives. There's many times we go and we face the valley of sin, but we have a Savior who's going to lead us out if we want him to. And, um, and today, as you may have gathered from the verses we read at the beginning, we're talking about the Valley of Eshel. And this is a, this is a pretty famous story in the Bible. It's one of the ones that make it into the Sunday School lessons. Not all of them do, but it's one of the ones, the 12 spies, you know. And so at this point in the, the story, Israel, they've crossed the Red Sea and they've come to the, the promised land. The land that God has said he would give to them, and they find themselves in the valley of Eshel. And the first passage we read, it said it was a brook. And the second passage we read, it said it was a valley. How can this be? Does that contradict? Well, saints today, I think they have the same name. You know, we live in the Annapolis Valley, which is uh, what's running through it, the Annapolis River. And it empties into the Annapolis Basin, and the Annapolis Royal. Well, it's not uncommon for different things to have the same name. I grew up in St. John, which is along the St. John River. They're not the same thing, but they're the same area. So this is kind of the same situation. You got the valley, Eshel, and there's a brook with the same name running through it. And so this place is located outside the city of Hebron. And this is where God led the people of Israel. He leads them out of Egypt. And he leads them across the Red Sea. He delivers them from the enemy. He delivers them from their past. He delivers them from slavery. And he leads them to this valley of Eshel. And you may say, oh, that's a lovely story. What does this have to do with me? Paul in the New Testament of 1 Corinthians, he compares this story with our story of being delivered from sin. In 1 Corinthians 10, um, 1 and 2, he says, Moreover, brethren, it would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and the sea. So he compares Israel being delivered out of Egypt and going through the Red Sea. He um, says all, you know, he compares it to baptism and he says all the people and stories from that time in verse 6. Now these were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So this story of Israel in the wilderness, the story of Israel being led out of Egypt and all these things, they can be applied to, to our lives. They can be used to show us things in our own lives and what decisions to make and what decisions not to make. Some people, some people teach us, you know, this is the way to do things. And there are others that teach us how not to do things. So these, these are examples for us, how we should live or how we shouldn't live. And so God, he leads Israel out of Egypt and, you know, just like he leads us out of the world or out of sin, like we mentioned last week, and he leads them to the valley of Eshel in verse, or Numbers 13, 1 to 2. So we're going to go through this story a bit. 
It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Send thou men, that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel, of every tribe of their fathers, shall ye send a man, every one a ruler among them. So God, you know, you're familiar with this story, most of you. Just hold on. Don't tune out. God says to Moses, send some spies into Canaan. I want you to pick one guy from each tribe. There's 12 tribes. Pick a guy from each, a leader, and send them. I haven't given you the land just yet. I've led you to the promised land, but I haven't given you the land just yet. You're going to have to take this land. But before you do, I just want you to see how great it is. I just want you to see how wonderful this land is that I promised you how, how great it is. And I want you to give a glimpse. I want to give you a glimpse of what I can do. This is what God's doing to Israel. He's going to give them a glimpse of the promised land. I want to give you a vision of this place and this promise that I've given you. Because God often will, will give us a vision or a glimpse or a goal or a promise. And he may show us what it is. He may show us just a little bit to let us know what he can do. To let us know that in fact God can keep his word. A lot, a lot of times God will lead us to a place and he'll give us a glimpse of something. And we'll be praying and you'll see something. You know, church full or whatever. And, and things that aren't happened, haven't happened yet. And he gives you a glimpse just to show us these are the things that I can do. To let us know that he can keep his word. To let us know that he can honor his promises. There's a pastor, a friend of mine, and our church had been struggling for a while. And no, no new folks had come in. And, and, um, and he prayed that, that Sunday morning. He said, God, let a new person that's never been here before just show up tonight. Because we need something to, to, to just something happen here. Because this is just whatever. And so the evening service, they had seven visitors show up. And one person who had never been there before, and he told the pastor, he said, for some reason, I just felt like I needed to be here tonight. And whether that person will stay or not, we don't really know, but God has just given him a glimpse of what he can do. He can fill the church. He can, he can save whoever he wants to save. And um, Sometimes God will do this. He'll just show us, you know, I can do this. And this is what, this is what he's doing for Israel right now. Look, if you keep following me, if you keep obeying me, I can do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you could ask or think. And sometimes we, we pray little, it seems to us, little insignificant prayers, and God answers them. He shows us, and he gives us a glimpse of what he can do. I can do these things that you're asking, so keep following me and keep trusting me because there's more. But I, I'm just showing you right now what, what I can do. So God says to Moses, pick 12 men. And, and let's, let's send them into Canaan. Let's send them into the promised land so that they can see what I have in store uh, for you. And they can come back and they can tell everyone else. Right? So this is where they are. Because you can't send everyone. You send all of Israel in. That's an invasion. And they're going to notice. And they're probably going to get a little upset. So he sends 12, 12 guys. Whatever. You're not going to really care. So they send 12 men in. And so... Um, the spy of the land. And the purpose of them going is to bring back a good report. Uh, verse 17 to 20 says, Moses sent them the spy of the land of Canaan and said unto them, Get you up this way southward and go up into the mountain and see the land, what it is, and the people that dwelleth therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many, and what land it is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad, and what cities 
they be that they dwell in, whether in tents or in strongholds. And what the land is, whether it be fat or lean, whether there be wood therein or not, and be ye of good courage and bring the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So Moses says, I want you to go into the land, to the 12 guys. I want you to go and see what kind of land it is. Because if we're going to live here, we need to know what we're dealing with. Is it, you know, are there crops growing? Is it all trees? Are we going to live in the forest? Is it a desert place? Is it all rocks like Newfoundland where you can't grow anything? Like what, kind of, what kind of land is it that we're going to get into? You know, see the people. Uh, you know, how many are there? Are they big? Are they strong? Are they weak? Are they sick? Are they old? Are they young? Are they all kids? Like, what kind of people are we up against? What are we dealing with? And look at the cities. And do they live in tents? Because that would be easy to take down. Or do they live in, you know, walled cities with fortresses and all of this stuff? So he says, I want you to look at all this and bring back a report. And last but not least, be of good courage. Bring some food back that you find so we can taste it and see Verse 23 to 25. And they came unto the brook of Eshel and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes. And they bear it between two upon a staff. That's a big bunch of grapes. One year I cut grapes for a couple weeks. None of them are that big. This is a big, they got two guys. These are strong guys. Like these guys were slaves. They were making bricks for a living. They were, they were tough. They were strong took two of them to carry this cluster of grapes. So this is probably a pretty big bunch of grapes. And they brought pomegranates and figs. And the place was called the Brook of Eshel because the cluster of grapes were the children of Israel cut down from thence. And they returned from searching of the land 40 days. So they go over. They go, they're gone for 40 days. They bring back some grapes, some pomegranates, and some figs, all good stuff to eat. And this place was called Eshel, which means cluster because of the grapes. In verse 26, 27, it says, And they went and came to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them and said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. So the spies come back to Moses and his brother Aaron and all the Israelites, and they show them the fruit that they brought back. This huge cluster of grapes that takes two men to carry on a stick. The pomegranates and the figs. And they say to Moses, we've come to the place you've sent us. And it flows with milk and honey. Wonderful. This is what God promised, right? He promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. A good place. A place of abundance. A place of blessing. It's the promised land. This is what God has promised. And they say to everyone, look. It's just like he said, look at these grapes. Look at the size of these things. Look at this, um, the figs and the pomegranates. Look at all the stuff we've brought. Isn't it amazing? God's, look at all this stuff. He's, everything's just like God said. Because things are always like God says. When he gives us a promise, he keeps it. When he gives us a dream, he keeps it. When he says something, he does it. He says he's a healer, he's a healer. He says he's a comforter, you better believe that he's a, a comforter. He says he's a prince of peace, well, you better believe that he is. He says he's enough, well, he is. He's a provider, a counselor, a, a shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life. Whatever God says, he does. And whatever God says, he is, he is. God's not a man that he should lie. So they shouldn't have been surprised about what they found in the promised land. So the people, the people that are pumped. What God said is true. Let's go. Let's go get. I want some grapes. Right? These people, 
No doubt their, their, faith's been, their faith is rising because God's led them and everything that he said so far has come to pass and it's true. And when people saw the size of the grapes, they had to get a little bit excited because they've been eating manna for a while. The same thing every day. And man, those grapes and those figs, they look good, but there's not enough for all of us. So let's go get some. Right? Imagine we eat the same thing every day and someone comes with big old grapes. They look good. Even if you don't like grapes. After a while, anything looks good if you eat the same thing every day. This is it. We've made it to the promised land. The promised land is right there. We're almost there. We can see it. Let's go. But this is where, you know, the story takes a turn. 29, 28 to 29. Nevertheless, the people, this is the, the spies speaking. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land. That was one of the things they're supposed to look for, right? The cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. And Amalekites dwelt in the land in the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites. And the Amorites dwelt in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwelt by the sea, by the coast of Jordan. All the ites are here. Mosquito bites. I don't know. However, they said, however, the people that live there, they're strong. Their cities are strong. There's walls. You know what happens to the walls later. But there's walls, and there's Anak, and Amalekites, and Hittites, and Jebusites, and Amorites. Oh my, even Canaanites living in Canaan. Mind-blowing. <laughs> they were shocked. They built Canaanites living in Canaan. Craziness. Everything God has promised us, it's right there, but we may have to fight for it. Everything God promised us is right there, but it, <laughs> it's... Yes. It, we might not be as easy as we thought it was going to be. It might not be the walk, the walk in the park that we thought it would be. And for whatever reason, we have this idea that because God promises something, it's just going to appear one day. Magically appear and everything's going to be great. It's just going to... Revival's coming. We show up and church is full and everyone's acting crazy. We just assume that's what's going to happen. Just going to appear one day. We're just going to show up and everything's going to fall into place instantly and there's not going to be any resistance from, from the enemy. There's not going to be any resistance from anything. It's just, there it is. We think we can show up to church without praying or fasting or reaching and have 50 new people receive the Holy Ghost. So we think we can, uh, we're going to operate in the gifts of the Spirit without ever consecrating our lives to God. Or we think we will be incredibly anointed and used without any sort of holiness. And this is what's happening here. They thought they'd just walk in and boom, there would be everything they wanted. But instead, God wanted them to work for it. God wanted them to fight for it. Because you don't appreciate what you don't work for. You don't care about what you don't work for. You don't take care of what you didn't work for. Right? God will honor his promises, but we may need to pray a little bit more. God will honor his word, but we may need to fast a little bit more. God will honor what he said, but we're going to have to do something with it. We might have to push a little bit harder. We may have to work a little bit harder. We may have to fight a little bit harder. Numbers 13 and 30. Caleb still the people before Moses and said, let's go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb, he's one of the two spies that thought they could do it because, hey, God's brought us this far already. 
I mean, you parted the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his army couldn't stop us. He's fed us. He's led us here. There's grapes. Like, let's go. Let's do it. We can do it. We can do it. God's brought us this far already. And he tells everyone, let's go. We can do this. Let's go right now at once and possess it. Let's not even, we're going to need a plan. Let's just go. And God's going to help us. Numbers 14, 6 to 8. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, maybe, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes, and they spake unto the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we passed through to search it is an exceeding good land. And if the Lord delight in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, the land which goes with milk and honey. Caleb and Joshua were like, We can do this, guys. God's brought us this far. He's with us, and if he's with us, then we he can help us take this. That's Joshua and Caleb, but um, Numbers 13 31 to 31 to 33, the rest of them. The men that went up with them said, We may we be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land though through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so were we in their sight. And people preach on that grasshopper thing, but we're not going to really touch that. But the rest of them, so there's two of them that said, we can do it. The other ten, they just threw a big old-fashioned pity party. Oh, they're stronger than us. How do they do that? I don't know, because like we said, the Israelites, they were tough. They'd been slaves. They were hard workers. They were, they were fit. They were in shape. They were strong. You know, they worked hard. They were tough. And Oh, there's giants, and we're grasshoppers. Ah. And they throw this big party and pity party. And if you're still with me, what does this have to do with anything? This is the point. The children of Israel, at this moment, they had to make a decision. Who were they going to believe? Caleb and Joshua? Or Shamua, Shaphat, Igal, Palti, Gadiel, Gadi, Emiel, Sether, Nabi, and Geul? Who were they going to believe? You don't even know those other names. You probably haven't even heard them before. Because all we know is Joshua and Caleb, because their names are easy. Who are we going to believe? The guys with the easy names or the ten other guys? Do we believe these two guys or do we believe these ten other guys? Do we believe the good report that we can take it, that God's with us, that he's led us this far, that he's going to give us this promised land? Or do we believe the evil report that we're grasshoppers and the land eats people up and there's giants and, oh, we can't do it and there's walls? What report are we going to believe? Because the Valley of Eshel is the valley of decision and this is a valley that we will come to time and time again this is a valley that we've been to before and we will come to again the valley of decision and Israel had to make a choice in this moment do we keep going because God promised this land but they're saying there's giants they're saying it could be too hard there's walls we don't have the tools or the weapons to take these cities we don't know how to fight we were slaves we know how to make bricks but we don't know how to fight we don't we don't know warfare we we made bricks we raised sheep this is outside of our comfort zone what do we do 
Do we keep going or do we stop? Do we press on or do we stop? And this is the same question we have to answer today. Do I keep pressing on or do I stop? Do I keep going forward with God or do I stay where I'm at? This is the valley of decision. Do I keep going forward in my faith? Do I get baptized? Do I seek the Holy Ghost? Do I fast more? Do I spend more time in prayer? Do I teach a Bible study? Do I come to church more? Do I stop doing the thing that I know I shouldn't be doing? Do I take that extra step? Do I go a little bit further? Do I stay in the same place? Do I step into the promise of God or not? Even if it means I'll have to do a little bit more. Do I step into that calling that God's got for me or not? Do I go further into in my relationship with him or not? Do I take that step towards salvation or not? Do I, repentance or baptism or whatever. Do I take that extra step of dedication or not where God's calling me to? Or do I take that extra step of consecration or not? The valley of decision. And we can judge the people of Israel all we want. We know that they chickened out. We know that they had to wander for years because of this before they finally got in. And we can judge them all we want. But how many times do we ourselves stop short of the promise of God because of some sort of inconvenience? Because I just don't want to pray today. I just don't feel like doing this. I just don't want to go to church today. I just don't want to whatever. I'm tired. You know what? So are the rest of us. <laughs> We're tired. I haven't slept a full night since Annabelle was born. <laughs> My wife can hardly walk. But she's here. We're tired. Everyone's tired. We're all going through something. We're all tired. And they use that as an excuse. It's not... How many times do we stop short because of some sort of inconvenience? How many times do we back out because we're scared of rejection or failure or falling or looking a little bit foolish? Some of us, God's been dealing with us and he wants to take us further. He wants to use you like never before and he wants to, to work through you like never before and he wants to heal and he wants to restore and he wants to deliver. But we're going to have to make that decision. Do I stay here or do I trust God and his word? Do I look at all the stuff surrounding me or do I take him at his word? In the New Testament, I preached on this before, but there's a guy with a withered hand. And Jesus says to him, stretch forth your hand. He doesn't tell him what hand to put forth. He doesn't tell him what he's going to do. He doesn't tell him anything. He just says, put forth your hand. And the man has to make a decision. Am I going to show God my withered hand? Or my regular hand? What, what am I going to do? He has to make that decision. There, we're coming to these moments. If God's going to work in our lives, we have to make the decision to let him. We have to put forth that hand, that withered hand. We have to show him. You know, we have to be honest. Whatever we need to we find ourselves in these places, we have to make the decision that we're going to let God work. We're going to let God move. We're going to let God use us. We're going to let his anointing flow through us. And this is where Israel was. They had to make this decision. Do we keep going forward or do we just stay here? They'd been delivered. Egypt wasn't coming after them. They were just kind of in the middle. They weren't in the wrong place, whatever. They, I need to, they just had to make that decision. Do we just stop here or do I trust God in his word? Do I look at all the stuff surrounding me 
Although I trust him and his word. This is the valley of decision. It's not a comfortable place to be. It's not a fun place to be. And Israel was right there. The promised land was right in their grasp. The promised land was so close. They had some grapes. They had some figs. They had some pomegranates. They had some evidence. What God said was true. They knew. It was right there. But in the valley of decision, they uh, decided to walk away. There's always a decision. We're in this valley probably more than any other valley. Every day, basically. We got to decide. There's always a decision. God is always calling us closer to him. God is always trying to lead us into new territory. Some of us will never get there because we'd rather keep wandering around in the wilderness for years having nothing changed because we know the wilderness. There's no walls here. There's no giants. There's no, there's no battles we have to go through. We just kind of coast and hang out in the wilderness and everything's fine. God keeps providing for us and it's okay. And we're not, we don't want to go any further. The wilderness is great. I like it here. Numbers 14, 1-4. The congregation lifted up their voice and cried. And the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would God we had died in this wilderness. Wherefore hath the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be a prey. Were it not better for us to return unto Egypt. And they said one to another, let's make a captain and let us return to Egypt. God led them this far, right up to the promised land. They saw the evidence and they said, I don't this is too hard. I want to go back to Egypt. There's always a pull in the valley of decision to go back to what we know. There's always a pull to go back to where God's brought us out of, to go back to our old ways. And it is in this valley that we need to commit to Jesus and say, I'm going with you. You've led me this far, I'm going to keep going. This is our decision. Am I going to go back to my old ways? Am I going to keep wandering in the wilderness? Or am I going to go forward? The Israelites chose to believe the negative report. Growing up, we had a song we used to sing in church. Whose report will you believe? You know that one? We shall believe the report of the Lord. His report says, I am healed. His report says, I am filled. His report says, I am free. His report says, victory. And then everyone would just go nuts and, you know, have a victory, jumping around. We have to choose whose report we're going to believe. The one that God says that God's for us, the one that says it's too hard and we're not going to be able to do it. This is the valley we find ourselves in a lot every day, it seems. This is a daily thing, deciding to follow Jesus and deciding to believe his report because right now the reports of the world are pretty negative. But if we aren't careful, we will start just grabbing a hold of all those things. Whose report will we believe? There's always a choice. Later on, Joshua, one of the spies, he becomes a leader and leads Israel to the promised land, finally. And near the end of his life, the lesson he learned in this valley is still resonating. And he says in Joshua 24, 14 to 15, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him 
in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil to you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There's always a choice. We find ourselves in this valley and we need to decide who it is that we're going to serve. Am I going to serve him and go further or am I just going to stay here? Or worse, go back to Egypt. When the enemy says to give in, when the world tells you you're crazy, when your family tells you to quit, what's the decision? What's, what are you going to decide? You have a choice. So this morning, I'm done preaching. It took a long time to get there, but we did. I'm going to give you a, an opportunity to make that choice. The valley is where things grow, and it's in the valley of decision that our faith grows. We learn to walk by faith and not by sight, because it looks like these guys are tough. It looks like there's walls. It looks like these guys are giants. It looks like the earth just swallows people up. This is a wild place. It looked hard. But faith is... We're supposed to walk by faith, not by sight. So it's in this valley of decision that we learn to trust Him in His Word. If God said, I'm going to lead you to it, then He's going to do that. And He will lead us. So we're going we're gonna to pray this morning. If you're in that valley today, most of us probably are. Let's make that decision to go further with him. When God's been dealing with you and he's been speaking with you about something, maybe about stepping out into something, maybe about witnessing to someone or praying more, starting a Bible study or studying through whatever it is that he's been dealing with you with about make that decision today. Say, oh, I'm going to go with you. If he was in dealing with you about being baptized, let's do it. Make that decision. If he's been dealing with you about repenting, seeking his spirit, whatever it is, this is the valley of decision and we need to make a choice today. If we're going to stay where we are or if we're going to go further with, with him. Amen. I'm going to stop talking. Let's find a place this morning and pray. If you want to come to the altar, you can pray here. If you want to pray in your seats, if you want to pray with each other, whatever you want to do, let's just pray um, this morning and make these decisions today. We're in this valley. We're in here a lot. We need to make the right choice. Well, the choice is up to you. In Jesus' name. Jesus, I pray that you would speak to us tonight, God. If there's anything that 
you put ahead of you, God, that we would, God, you would show us tonight. In Jesus' name, I pray, God, that your anointing continue to work. I anoint our ears to hear your word and uh, my mouth to speak it clearly. In Jesus' name, let your will be done, I pray. In the name of Jesus. Um, and you can be seated if you like. I'm not going to get, I'm going to read the Bible at all. No, it's like, it's a lot of days in here. I've got a long introduction. Um, as I said, the last couple weeks, uh, last uh, year and a half ago or whatever, almost two years, we did uh, a series on lament, how to lament. And this, may, this bit may sound familiar because I've said it every week, but um, so this series that we've been doing the last few weeks is uh, kind of a part two of that series. That one focused on how to do it. And this one is not necessarily focused on how to do it, but um, what we can learn from these times of suffering and things that we go through. And uh, so again, it's based on a book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy by Mark Rogrop. And um, But basically, a lament is a prayer that's prayed to God through hard times, through pain, through loss, through suffering, and uh, a lot of times we associate it with um, with a, a death or a loss of a loved one, um, but it's not only for those times. Um, and, um, you know, it could be loss of anything. Um, there are times we have dreams that we think should happen. Once you reach a certain age, it's like it's probably not going to happen, and there's there's this thing they have to deal with, and there's, you know, a job loss is a big deal, or a relationship breaking up, all these different things. So lament can be used for anything, and it can be used... Um, you know, as praying for what's going on in our world and all these types of things. And so it's not just about losing a person that you love. It's all, all kinds of things. And so, um, but basically when, when we're at a loss, there's this, this awkward in-between stage because we know um, the Bible tells us who God is. We know who God is. We know that he loves us. We know that he cares for us and all these things. And um, when we lose someone or a dream is shattered or we lose a job or something, um, life altering happens, you go through a divorce or whatever, something terrible happens, there's this feeling that God doesn't love me or God isn't there or God's turned his back on me or whatever. And uh, we, in our head we know that he does, but in our hearts and our feelings it doesn't feel that way all the time. And so there's this weird in-between stage where we try to bring together what we know uh, with how we're feeling. And so we've looked at, um, in the past, some of the psalms. One out of every three psalms in the book of Psalms is a psalm of lament, um, crying about things that have happened. Or, um, and there's this pattern that emerges as we study them, um, like four different four steps to pray a prayer of lament. We turn, complain, ask, and trust. So. Uh, we turn to God in prayer, which is the first steps. So we got to keep the lines of communication open with God. If we want Him to heal, we want Him to work. We got to be able to be open with Him. Um, the second thing is we complain, which I know um, doesn't sound whatever because Christians are always supposed to be positive, but um, it's okay to complain in prayer to God because God knows what you're going through. And it, so, you know, when we need to tell God where it hurts. We need to tell God what's going on. I miss this person. I've been hurt by these people. My life's fallen apart. I feel betrayed. Whatever whatever the instance is, it's okay to complain to God. As long as that's not all you do. We talked about this before, but 
Um, so there we complain, and then we ask him to intervene. That's the whole point of complaining, is to get that out so we know what we're dealing with, and then God can step in and work with that. So we ask him to intervene, to have his way, to help us, to move, and to speak, and to touch, and I'm using my hands a lot, I just noticed, but that's what we do. And then the last part is we, um, we trust him. So we've opened up to him, we've told him all these things, we've asked him to step in, we've asked him to move, and now we trust him to do it on his time, when he's ready, when he is going to do it. So that's, that's how it works. And so this isn't a one and done thing, you don't just pray this one time and then all your issues are going away. Sometimes we got to go through this for months, years, weeks, whatever, depends on, depends on all the things. Sometimes we lay some of the... You know, lay the, the pain down and you take some of it back. You know, that's how it is. It doesn't, things just aren't washed away instantly. Uh, if you've been through anything, you know that a lot of things take time. Um, and sometimes our pain is so wrapped up in, in our identity and who we are, it takes a while to let all of it go. But as we go through this, uh, whatever it is that we're struggling with, God begins to work. It's not often instant. It would be nice if it was. But that's how it works. So while we're struggling with these feelings and these questions and trying to um, connect you know, what we know about God and how we're feeling, we're in this in-between stage. There are some things that we can learn. And that's what we've been talking about this time around. What can I learn from suffering? What can I learn from what I'm going through or what I've gone through? And so the first week we talked about the first two chapters of Lamentations. This is where we've been focusing and uh, how Jerusalem was destroyed, how sin broke in the world, and all the pain and heartache comes from the brokenness of the world because of sin. And, you know, in heaven, there's no sin, there's no pain, there's no tears, there's no sorrow, because those all are connected. There's no need for the men in heaven, and that's our hope. And so that was, that was the first one. Like, the world is broken, but God is holy. And the second, last week, was about hope and where we get hope from during times of loss. And what we need to do is repeat the things that we know, repeat what the Bible tells us. And as we do that, as we pray through this, as we you know, tell ourselves over and over that God is good and God does love me and God will not turn his back on me, he is there. And as we do that, there's a hope that comes. There's a hope that springs up from repeating and rehearsing um, what we know. And so that's, that's what we've gone through. And so this lesson, um, tonight is about unearthing idols. <laughs> because sometimes, um, sometimes loss and heartbreak or suffering or whatever, whatever word you're feeling, sometimes um, when we go through these, um, these things, things uh, appear in our lives that we didn't realize were there. They show us where we put our hope instead of in God, whether we realize it or not. Um, this, uh, I had this sitting here not long enough. It's supposed to be clear, but you can see it's a little clearish. And um, if it was clearer, it'd be better. But this is, you know, our life is kind of like this. Just imagine this is clear, you know, and, um, you know, there's some stuff at the bottom of it. And when everything's stable and still, it looks okay, it looks clear, it looks fine. 
I was hoping it'd be really clear, and then I would just cover the bottom and pretend to drink, and you would never know. But it's gonna take a little longer. But this is this is what our life is like, and it looks fine up here, and it looks okay. But there's all this stuff on the bottom, and what lament, um, what lament does, or suffering, suffering does, is it, it um, it just you know, I can't really shake it right now. Hold on, I'm gonna make a mess. Come on. There we go. Man, that stuff settled in there good. But what it does is it shakes everything up that we forgot about and everything that's kind of underneath. And when stuff happens, it all comes out. Things that we didn't realize were there and things we didn't know were there. And that's going to take seven hours to settle down again. But that's, that's what happens. You know, this is what lament does. It brings out these things that we didn't realize um, were there. So that's what we're going to talk about. If we... If we bump or shake the glass, uh, all the stuff at the bottom is activated and revealed and moved around, and it doesn't look nice anymore. <laughs> this is a mess now. And so that's, that's what happens. Um, suffering shakes the glass of our lives and it stirs up the stuff we've forgotten about, the stuff we've pushed down, or the things we've tried to hide. It could be fear, it could be pride, it could be covetousness or self-sufficiency, and all the, whatever, whatever the things are, whatever the, whatever. But pain can reveal these things in our lives. And hardship reveals idols. And in the Bible, an idol was, um, to put it simply, an object of trust that takes the emotional and practical place of God. That's what an idol is, um, as simply as possible. In the Old Testament, idolatry or the worship of idols involved praying to, for example, praying to the goddess of fertility because we need it to rain in our sheep uh, are sick and they need water and food and that, so we would offer sacrifices and pray to this this idol and, and hope that it would rain or whatever. But idolatry at its heart didn't end when people stopped worshiping these statues because people as a whole have kind of moved on from most places from going to a temple and bringing things to a to a statue. People have kind of moved on from that. Uh, it's more undercover now. And to be honest, it's probably easier to get someone to turn from the statue thing. And from the other. Um, Timothy Keller in his book, Counterfeit God, says, What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. So an idol is anything that you can't live without. I'm not talking food or water, but you know, I can't, oh, I need my sports. I need my scores. I need my, my news. I need to know what's happening. I need my money. I need my stuff. I need my phone. I need my politics. I need whatever. Whatever it is, anything that you, yeah. Anything that controls us because what we believe they, they will give to us. We, worship these other idols because of what we think they give us. Just like the old days, they would give offerings to a statue in hopes that would rain. We will spend hours scrolling through social media because it gives us something, some sense of knowing what's going on, some sense of entertainment, or some sense of approval. You know, when you get those like notifications. Oh, 43 people? No, that never happens, but all these people like my picture, or people call me, whatever. 
That's what it gives us, and we kind of can worship that, or we'll spend hours listening and devouring the news and getting consumed by it because of a feeling you get of knowledge, and I know more than whatever this person we can do with education, we can do with all anything really. These are not going to be preaching with these specific things, but this is an example, and and sadly we can also make people our idols. I can't live without so and so. Or we can make our relationships idols. And the true test of idolatry is our response to his loss. If we lose this thing, if this thing that we love is taken away, how do we react? And there's two options, sorrow or despair. Again, Timothy Keller says, sorrow comes from losing one good thing among others. Despair, however, is inconsolable because it comes from losing the ultimate thing. When you lose the ultimate source of your meaning or hope, there are no alternative sources to turn to, and it breaks your spirit. My good friend and yours, Marilla Cuthbert, says despair, to despair is to turn your back on God. So it's okay to be sorrowful. It's okay to mourn things. But if my world just ends and I can't go on anymore because something happened, this thing's gone, I... Oh, there's uh, people that were here and somebody lost their cell phone. Remember all the girls were here? One of them lost their cell phone and everything had to stop until this person could get a new one. We went to Upper Clements Park and it was lost somewhere. Everything had to stop until this person got a new one. Because I can't live without it. I need whatever. And this, this is the thing. I can't. This is how, you know, what we shouldn't be doing. Anyways, let's get into the Bible eventually. We'll get there. But if you think about a time or a season of loss in your life or a season of tears and sadness, what did you learn about yourself? What lessons did you discover? What idols surfaced? I know when my father passed away, my parents were divorced at the time. And um, I always, like most kids, that their parents are divorced. I, I had this hope and this prayer that they would get back together. This is all I cared about. This is all, and whenever they came, or my dad came around, or you know, we have prayer requests in Sunday school. This, all of us divorcee kids, it's all the same thing, right? Well, my mom and dad back together. That was my hope and my prayer. And as a nine-year-old kid, I didn't really understand the ins and outs of adult relationships. Obviously, I didn't understand what had happened or why they weren't together what he'd done. I didn't really get all of the things, but I just knew that they weren't together and they should be because all of my friends' parents were, and this isn't right. And so that's what I, that's all I seem to care about. And I think one of the hardest parts about him passing away and losing him was losing that hope and that dream that we'd be a real family again. And through losing my father, this idea or this dream of mine it was kind of like an idol to me as a kid I didn't know what any of this meant I didn't know whatever but my hope was in this thing happening and that's all I wanted and when it was lost it took me years to get over it and put my hope in the right place so after this really long introduction we're going to look at Lamentations chapter 4 a bit and it deals with um, the idols that we've put uh, too much of our hope and lament not only expresses sorrow over a loss, but it also mourns and deals with this misplaced trust, trust and hope. And when life falls apart, it can reveal things in us. 
Um, so chapter four, we're gonna look at some expressions of idolatry, some ways that we can show idolatry in our lives and how times of suffering and sorrow can reveal that. So the first one, first way we can show idolatry is focusing on financial security. Chapter four starts with lamenting or mourning the loss of the security and glory of the wealth of Jerusalem, verse one. And again, I'm reading all the limitations in the English standard because poetry is hard enough as it is, and this is easier to read. So um, it says, how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. So the city of Jerusalem was the spiritual and economic center of Israel. Everything was focused on this place. Uh, the temple was an incredibly beautiful place. The Ark of the Covenant, the walls, the, all the vessels and utensils, and even the shields and stuff in, the, in the, the temple, they were all made from precious metal. There was gold everywhere. And when you went there, it was incredible. All this gold made a, a statement. And I don't think any of us have ever really seen anything like that. Uh, I've been able to go to Paris a couple of times, and there are certain parts and certain things that are covered in gold, and it's incredible. I can't, I've never been to a hole where all the walls are gold. Like This would just be an amazing, incredible um, thing. The gold of Jerusalem made a statement, and gold with the, the Jewish people was connected to the glory of God. It was this incredible, beautiful thing. And, but now, after all has happened, um, the city's been destroyed, the temple's been destroyed, the gold, Jeremiah says, is dim. And the city has lost its shine. The city has lost its appeal and its luster. The temple's been ruined. The symbols and the things in the temple have been ruined and, and desecrated. Any trust in what that gold represented was gone. And money, we know, has power, whether we want to admit it or not, I hear anyway, I don't know, I haven't had enough to actually make any sort of change. But I, the, the word on the street is, the more you have, the more you can do. I don't know. I'll let you know if I ever have any. But it gives, it gives security. It gives people identity. It gives some purpose. It gives, it gives us option, uh, options. If you have all kinds of money, uh, you can live anywhere you want. You can buy any house you want. You can drive any car you want. Uh, if you don't have all that, uh, you're a little limited. Amen. <laughs> you can live in certain places where the budget allows. You can only drive certain vehicles. Um, you can only wear certain clothes. So the more money you have, the more options you have. And if we aren't careful, um, money or the love of money um, can fuel self-sufficiency. That's why um, a recession or a loss of a job or a failure of a business, a, a factory closing in an area or uh, an industry shutting down or whatever, is it's an opportunity to reflect on misplaced trust and financial security. So lamenting a loss, not necessarily a death in this case, but a loss of income or a loss of a job or whatever can show us the foolishness of trusting in financial security. Because uh, if we aren't careful, the security that money gives or the fear of losing it, because not everybody has it, but a lot of people that don't have it are also obsessed with it. And they're terrified of things happening. It can become an idol in our lives. Hardship, stress, 
loss can reveal our obsession with the security money provides. We can be obsessed and worried about all these things. And then something happens. A loss, a funeral, a death, bad news from a doctor. And it wakes us up. We don't realize that we've been so focused on this thing. We don't realize that we're so consumed by financial security or whatever. And then you know, we're working all the time but ignoring our family and trying to get more money so they can whatever, have nicer house and whatever, all the stuff, you know. And then something happens, somebody dies, you get the news. It doesn't matter. And you realize in that moment that all this stuff I've been focused on, all these things I've been worried about, it wakes us up and it's, we realize this stuff doesn't matter. It shows us that all these other things, the money that we chase, the security uh, that we stress over, it doesn't really matter. So loss can, can show us idols in our lives and show us where our focus has been and where it shouldn't be. And it brings like this glass that we try to stir. It brings um, things that were buried and forgotten about to the surface. Uh, worry and fears about money seem shallow in the face of real loss. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 25 to 33, it's a long bit, but he says, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the valley, or lilies of the field, and how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast in the oven, shall he not more, much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. In other words, Jesus says, Don't worry about all this stuff. Let God take care of it, and if we trust him and follow him, he will take care of us. But we can, get, we can make all these things an idol in our lives. And it's not until... We go through a loss that we realize this thing's been uncovered and this is what I've been focused on and this doesn't actually really matter. This isn't where I should put my trust. So um, the suffering and lament, the first idol it can show us is financial security. The second, um, it can show us that we, we have a tendency to treat people like saviors. Um, suffering can also reveal how much we believe people can fix the problems around us. It could be politics. We just had an election, and I know people got their hopes up. Well, oh, guess what? It's the same old, same old. Nothing's changed. <laughs> but we hope that we'll have a new leader, and everything will be fixed. It's not. The next guy will do the same thing as the other ones. You've been around long enough. But we get our hopes up every time because we put our hope in this leader that he's going to fix everything. And the same with a, a business. You know, you get a new boss. Oh, but the song says, same as the old boss. I think that's the Rolling Stones I'm hoping of. <laughs> but, you know, it could be a new, a new pastor or whatever. Sorry, he's not better than the last guy. 
where we can put our hope into other people. That's partly why people are so drawn to fame and power. We live our lives through, through people who lead us. Uh, we think life will be better if the people that we want are in control. Um, if this person is premier. You know, we voted for one guy, so we wouldn't have these little passport things. Oh, now we do. Everyone's like, well, you know, so you, you, you learned this lesson already. But, you know, if this person is the premier, or this person's the prime minister, or this person's the pastor, or this person's um, the boss, or whatever, things will be better. And we can put our hope into people. We can treat people like they're our saviors, and they're going to deliver us, and they're going to make it better, and they're going to straighten everything out. And as Jerusalem lay there destroyed, it wasn't just the gold that was ruined, but it was also the hope that any leader could fix this. This was such a mess. No one person was going to be able to fix this. This was They couldn't fix the lives of the people. The culture of Jerusalem was broken like pots, he says in verse 2. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots. The work of the potter's hands. They're just destroyed, just broken. There was no one to stop the destruction. No leader could stop it. Jeremiah says that the rich were digging through ash heaps in verse 5. Those who once feasted on delicious um, delicacy, sorry, perish in the streets. Those who are brought up in purple, which is an expensive cloth, those who are brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. This is how bad things have gone. These were the leaders, and they're, they're no better than anyone else. And Princes who are known for their looks and their fame, they are now deformed and unrecognizable, verse 7 to 9. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk, their bodies more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot, they are not recognized in the streets. Their skin is, has shriveled on their bones and has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by any lack of the fruits of the field. And these are the princes. These are the people they would look up to to lead them. And they're, you can't even recognize them anymore. That's how bad it is. The king has been captured in Jeremiah 39, 1-10. He talks about that. His children were killed. His eyes were taken out. He was taken to Babylon. This is just a wild thing. Every leader they had is just destroyed. All the hope they had in the leaders is not there. Verse 20 says, The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom he, we said, under a shadow, we shall live among the nations. This shows us that there are limitations to human leadership. Man-made governments, um, theories of economics, armies, and they're not ultimate. They... And the people who leave them can fall and fail. A lament reminds us about the danger of putting too much hope in human leaders. When we go through some sort of loss, we realize that the people that we looked up to, they couldn't stop it. They couldn't, the, the king of Jerusalem couldn't stop Jerusalem from being destroyed. As much as I love my pastor growing up, Brother Goddard, it didn't matter who my pastor was, my, my father still would have died. He wouldn't have been able to protect me from it. If it was a different pastor, it wouldn't have, whatever. I know people that have left church because 
how they didn't agree with whatever the pastor was in charge and wasn't there for me or whatever. It was, people are people. And we, we, we're not perfect. We fall. And if we put our hope in the people, we're going to be disappointed. It didn't matter who the prime minister was. I think it was probably Gretchen at the time. My father still passed away. Things still happened. I was still hurt. It didn't matter who was in charge. It didn't matter who my teacher at school was. My hope can't be in these other people because pain is going to happen no matter what. And I sat up and worked under some incredible people of God and none of them were able to stop life from happening to me. As much as they probably would have liked to, they weren't. Because people are still people and people can't really protect us from pain or suffering. I know that we try to do it for others, but they can't stop things from happening. As much as we look up to them or as much as we want them to, they can't fix everything and they can't stop it all from happening. And lament reminds us of putting too much hope in human leaders. The book of Lamentations warns us that our deliverer doesn't sit in a courtroom somewhere. He doesn't sit in a boardroom somewhere. He's not in the palace somewhere. He doesn't stand behind the pulpit of a church. Seasons of loss and suffering show us how vain and silly it is to put our hope in anyone who isn't God. Because as much as we want them to help us, those who want them to protect us, things are still going to happen. No matter who's in charge. A good friend can be helpful when walking through pain, but they will never be able to bring complete healing to your heart. A good pastor may be there and pray for you and walk with you, but they will never be able to heal your hurt. That can only be done by God. And if we um, try to have someone else do that or fill that hole and heal that hurt, you're going to be disappointed. If you try to do it for someone else, you're going to get frustrated because you can't. Treating other people like saviors is a form of idolatry. A new pastor, a new boyfriend, or a new girlfriend, or a new politician, a new leader isn't going to fix anything. So sometimes when we go through suffering, sometimes when we go through these things, we realize that it shows us that we've been putting our hope in others when we're extremely disappointed by how they didn't save me, or they didn't protect me, or it's still the same. Does that make sense? Chapter 4 helps us see how vain it is to make anyone, including ourselves, the ultimate object of trust. The third idol we can, um, third way we can show idolatry in, in times of suffering, or the third thing we can um, be revealed is craving cultural comfort. With Jerusalem um, in ruins, as people often do in times of crises, crises they started treating each other differently. Um, you can look at society right now. We're in a pandemic. And uh, it'd be best to stay out of the comment sections on the internet when it comes to vaccinated versus unvaccinated or masks and unmasked. And you can see just the way people are treating each other. It's crazy and ridiculous. And something happens and we all forget how to be kind with each other. Everyone's an idiot. Everyone but me is wrong. I'm the only one that knows and my way is the right way and everyone else is, yeah. Right? That's how it is right now. And this is what happened with Jerusalem. And 
Canadians are known the world over for being polite and kind to everyone, but not so much now. Not with each other. There's a stuff going on, and we're not treating each other the way that we're, we're supposed to. Our culture says that we should do these things. Our culture says that we should take care of each other. Our culture says we should be polite. This is how this is who we've told everyone we are. This is this is Canada. But with all this stuff going on, we've forgotten it. We're not doing it, right? And the same sort of thing happens in Jerusalem. People became cruel when all this stuff started falling apart. They were worse than animals. Lamentations uh, 4 and 3 says, even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young. Even, even the jackals, they're not even like, you don't even, they just eat dead animals. They're not even like good animals. Nobody's favorite animal is a jackal, a cute little jackal. These are just dirty, disgusting animals that full of diseases. But even they take care of their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel, like ostriches in the wilderness. They're not, they're not taking care of each other. And it says, when the children begged for food, no one gave them any. In verse 4, the tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst, and the children beg for food. But no one gives it to them. This is what it's like in this moment. Verse 9, they were hopeless and wished for death. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. So the point of Jeremiah writing like this, and remember this is a poem, so it's poetry. So it's very dramatic, because that's what poems are like. But the point of this is to show this complete unraveling of the culture and the social fabric of Jerusalem. Relationships were now dysfunctional. Compassion was gone. They weren't treating each other. They weren't even feeding their kids. They weren't, they weren't taking care of each other. And that's kind of what we're going through right now. Everything that we've been taught our whole lives, this is what a Canadian is. It's just, it's not there. And if we have put our hope into our culture, when stuff happens, a pandemic, for example, happens, we see this isn't the right place to put our hope. Because if I had put my hope in being Canadian, I'd be pretty disappointed with the way things are. Jeremiah uses lament to shine a light on this situation. He mourns the loss as a warning of how broken our society can become. And we can get caught up in our culture or society and we can, we can pretty much worship it. We're, we're proud to be who we are. Um, we see this a lot more um, openly in our neighbors to the south, generally. They're very, very patriotic and we have some of them among us. But we can do the same thing. Our whole pride is that we're not them. But we can be so caught up in our culture and society, we can just, we can worship who we are. Um, we can be so wrapped up in who we are as a culture or a nation and even, even as a church, we can do that. I'm Pentecostal or whatever. We can just worship who we are. And when things happen and that culture isn't there for us, that church, you know, they let us down. If our hope isn't in God and it's in this, we're going to be deeply disappointed. So suffering and lament shows us where our hope is. 
There's nothing like a, a loss or a, a pain or suffering that reveals all the flaws underneath it. Nothing like a, a pandemic to show how we actually think or care about people. And so if we, we put our trust in these things, we're going to be sadly disappointed when something happens. And so lament and pain can show this part of our idolatry. The last one is uh, idolizing spiritual leaders. When we go through a crisis, especially one that's connected to cultures like in the church, for example, that affects our relationships with spiritual leaders. In the book of Lamentation, um, the moral authority of Jerusalem has disappeared. Jeremiah mourns the loss of credibility among those who are supposed to be righteous. You can see this sort of thing happen today. Um, say some pastor is in the news for doing something wrong. Um, he gets caught in adultery or something. It affects how all other pastors and leaders are seen. Because if we put our hope in, in these leaders and then they let us down, and the rest of them are all trash. The rest, this is what we do. This is what people do. You can see this going on right now with the Catholic Church and the residential schools and all this stuff. Churches are just getting drugged through the mud because of something that's happened. If we put our hope in the church, if we put our hope in religious leaders, we're going to be disappointed and suffering will show that. Um, and Lamentations, Jeremiah says the spiritual leaders, they had a hand in what was going on in the corruption. Verse 13 says, this was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. And Jeremiah describes them as wandering, blind, isolated, and defiled, which is a nice description. Verse 14, he says, They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. And then he says, The people even called them unclean. In verse 15, Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, They shall stay with us no longer. And the honor that these leaders had, had quickly disappeared. In verse 16, The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests. No favor to the elders. So to sum it up in this story, the religious leaders of Jerusalem, they had lost their credibility and influence. And chapter 4 shows us how far the spiritual leaders could fall. Jeremiah paints a pretty um, clear description of what they were like. It's a warning to those in a position of leadership, but it's also a warning to those under spiritual leaders to not make an idol of them because they can let us down. A spiritual leader should walk alongside the people they're leading with an attitude of self-examination, self-awareness, humility, and repentance. But if we make idols of these leaders and they fall, our entire world can be shattered. But if instead we realize and understand that these men and women are also human, if they fall, we're still going to be okay with God. There's nothing like something happening, some drastic thing happening. I'll give you. A, I'll talk about it in a second, but um, but I hate to break it. I've been here four years almost now. We came. Somebody told me that five years is probably good. So. It's been almost four years, and if I haven't let you down yet, I probably will. <laughs> because that's because um, 
I'm not perfect. Um, this is how it is. And if you have your hope in me, I feel sorry for you. But don't, don't do that. I had a pastor who I greatly admired and looked up to. And one of the first people that just believed in me and my weirdness and, and encouraged, encouraged me um, to, to step out and do things. Um, he fell into sin and it rocked the whole church. And a lot of people left, a lot of people gave up, and a lot of people turned away from the whole thing. But those of us who didn't, we stayed not because we weren't hurt or not because we weren't sad or not because we weren't disappointed, because we were, but our hope wasn't in our pastor. Our hope wasn't in a man. I had a youth pastor that I wanted to be like more than anything. He influenced me greatly. He's no longer going to church. I had a Sunday school teacher as a young teenager um, get pregnant outside of marriage and leave the church for a while, and that kind of shook our little Sunday school class, as you can imagine. There's a lot of people that were in some sort of position of spiritual leadership in my life that, that have failed. And so for us to make an idol of these people, it's wrong. And when they, they fall short of our home, they fall short our whole world can crumble. When that happened with, with our pastor, and it just it shook everything. Like we, we didn't know what to do. We didn't know where we're supposed to go. And it's, it was a time of pain and confusion for the church and things were brought up and shaken and stirred and things we didn't realize and people that put their hope in and a person they ended up leaving people that put their hope in God they ended up sticking out I remember like a year or so after I just online then put like a status like I'm still here or whatever and someone else was like I think that's like the testimony of <laughs> Of the church right now and so anyways suffering and pain can and can show where we put our hope and um so why we need to keep our hope and our faith in god that sunday school teacher i told you about she, uh, she's back in church now um still hoping and praying for the youth pastor and pastor but god's working um suffering reminds us that only god is perfect People will fail and people will fall and leaders, leaders will fall and fail and preachers can too. And Lamentations 4 mourns the loss of spiritual authority and reminds us of the danger of putting our hope in these people. So lament invites us to recommit to faithfulness. Um, when I watch these people that I loved and honored and respected and looked up to fall, it drove me to recommit to Jesus even more. You know, I'm not... I don't want to do that. Pain can do that. Pain can cause us to recommit to, to Jesus even more. Right? And I know and realize this has been kind of a weird lesson. It's probably not what you thought it was going to be. Um, but chapter 4, it's a, very, it's a very negative and heavy chapter. All, there's 22 verses. 21 of them are very negative. And, uh, but there's still hope. There's always hope. Even in this dark and heavy chapter, the last verse has a glimmer of hope. Verse 22. It says, The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in uh, exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. Jeremiah promises that this won't last forever. 
this season of pain, what Jerusalem uh, is going through, what the nation is going through, the season of suffering, the season of lament, he says, will not last forever. He will keep you in exile no longer. He's going to bring you back. It's not going to last forever. And there's a purpose behind everything. Pain and suffering can unearth or reveal false idols in our lives, and God can use what we're going through to show us where our hope has been. There's nothing like being rocked to realize where your hope has been. And if our hope isn't in Jesus, we're going to be in some trouble. When pain knocks over our idols, praying prayers of lament invites us to examine ourselves and we can see clearly our misplaced trust and hope, either in financial um, things or in our culture or in people or spiritual leadership or any other thing. Pain and suffering help us see who we are and what we love and what our priorities are. And as we go through different times of loss, um, financial, death, sickness, dreams and goals, dying, doors closing, things breaking. Um, don't miss the life-changing lessons that are part of that process. Because we like rhymes, don't let the pain be in vain. God can show, show us things through our suffering. He can show us where our priorities are. It was in times of extreme abandonment and loss that I learned that I had put my hope and trust in friendships or relationships instead of God. It was in those moments that God showed me and I learned from it. And it was in times of ex extreme disappointment and doors being closed and, um, that I learned not to put my trust in people but instead in God and let Him lead, let Him open the doors, let Him guide. So don't miss what God is trying to show you. Emotional healing, while it's a good and it's a right goal, it shouldn't be the only goal. And these valleys that we go through can be the most important learning places and opportunities of our lives. Pain is uncomfortable, but it is a good teacher. So embrace the journey as hard as it is. Talk to God. Ask for forgiveness when idols are unearthed. Ask him to help you change. Put your hope and trust in him. Lamentations was written to teach us these lessons. I know that was a bit, that was long. 